Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers, using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like School districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice? curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone. Welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
a teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Hi, Jillian. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to talk to you. I am a voracious reader, and I can't wait to talk about your new book, The Gift of the Unexpected. Why don't you do a quick little introduction of yourself for my audience? Yeah, I think the best way is to tell you a little bit about my story, which starts in the summer of 2013. I was just finishing up a TV news anchor and reporter job in Augusta, Georgia, and my husband had just graduated dental school, and he took an Air Force scholarship, and so it was our turn to pay back the Air Force with our time. And so we took this short 11-month assignment for a residency program that he was doing with the Air Force in Las Vegas, Nevada. And I thought it was the perfect time to take off of TV news because we had just had our first daughter. It was such a short assignment. And I thought I would go right back to TV news. Then I get a phone call May 8th, 2014. And my husband tells us that we are going to Holloman Air Force Base. And I cried all day long because there is not even a target in Holloman Air Force Base area, which is Alamogordo, New Mexico let alone a TV news station. And so my life, I felt like blew up in one day. And later that day, I had this little whisper in my heart to take a pregnancy test. We were not in the business of trying. Our daughter had just turned a year old and lo and behold, it was positive. And I thought, okay, God, okay. You want me to be a stay-at-home mom? I get it, okay. Then we get to Alamogordo and it's time for my 20-week ultrasound. And I noticed that the tech is taking a really long time, something that probably most of your listeners can relate to. And finally, she gets her measurements, walks out, nurse walks in and says, everything must look great because the doctor's not here. And as soon as she said those words, he walked in and he explained to us that there were several markers on the ultrasound that indicated that our child had a higher chance of having a trisomy. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, it means your child has a higher chance of having a condition like Down syndrome. And I just remember my back breaking out in fire and the words, I can't be a special needs mom. I can't be a special needs mom. Because of course I couldn't, because that was definitely not a part of the plan. Then we got blood work done. Eight days later, got a new phone call from my husband. And he said, the doctor called. It's not good. I'm coming home. And I just remember my heavy 21-week pregnant body just falling to the kitchen floor. And the words, oh no, oh no, oh no, this doesn't feel real. This doesn't feel real, which I now call my before and after moment. Then we had to go into the doctor's office to get the official results. And we knew that the test was positive for something, but we didn't know what. And he walks in and says, it's not good news. Your child has a 99.9% .9 chance of having Down syndrome. And it's normally at times like these, people want to talk about their options. And I said, what options? And he says, option one, you terminate the pregnancy. And I said, what's option two? And he said, option two is you continue your pregnancy with a high-risk doctor. But don't worry, 
you don't have to be a hero. If you decide not to go through with the termination, you can have the baby here and we can keep him comfortable, but we don't have to do anything drastic to save his life. So in other words, the doctor believed that our child would have a life that was not worth living. So I grieved as if a death had taken place. But it would take me many months to realize that I had more in common with that doctor than I wanted to admit, and that my grief was tied to the same ideals that he had about the world and about success and worth and those sorts of things. And so that's really what this book is about. It's about the undergoing process that needs to happen when the unexpected hits our lives so that we can become the truest, fullest version of ourselves. Yeah. And so I'm undergoing a professional transformation of sorts. And so what when I listened to an abbreviated version of your birth story, even though I just read it in the book and I've seen other iterations of it online because you're so gracious and sharing your story online quite a bit. The thing that I, the, the emotion that I felt the most was gratitude. You and I spent a second talking offline and you were saying how you're tired this week. wonder if one of the reasons that you're so tired is because you just, again, graciously for outreach purposes, wrote a book about your own personal experience. And the personal experience starts with your diagnosis. And so day after day, moment, after really diving deep into that to, to write something creative for the masses, you are reliving it in these interviews. And so I just want to stop for a second and say thank you. Thank you for sharing your story and for really fully committing yourself to the emotion of reliving that and diving into the journey of transformation. Our community needs this and I'm grateful as a part of it. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I think you're probably right. I told you earlier that I just took a part-time marketing job at my husband's office and I wrote March marketing 2014 on the top. And I think it's because I've been saying that date of 2014 so often in these interviews. But I start with when people ask me to introduce myself, I could tell you my credentials or whatever. But I think just telling this part of the story, this before and after moment that so many of us, especially your audience, can relate to. I want to encourage parents to if they haven't really under, undergone that process fully to go back, to go back to that point, to observe the grief that they had, possibly over their child's diagnosis. And because that's where transformation happens, it's through that process of dissecting that a bit and the unlearning and then the learning that needs to take place so that we can become the, to, so that we can live into our entireties. And I think when we're living into our entireties, we can better help our children to live into their own. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I couldn't agree with you anymore. And actually, that was a really great segue into my first question. You probably didn't even know it. But I told you that when I was 15 years old, I was involved in a gasoline explosion that broke four vertebrae. And so I not only had the trauma, but I actually am sarcastically lucky enough to have PTSD because it just didn't clear my body. And I have chronic pain. And one of the things that you wrote in your introduction, this is like on the theme of going back and processing pain. 
I just want to read these couple of of sentences. You say, we are expected to be the PR team for Jesus and ourselves by feeling our pain for the shortest amount of time possible. And then you go on to say, we are expected to push through the sadness and the grief and to bring our hashtag good vibes only. And I think that is so true. In my own personal experience, I am part of a very long line of women that are hysterically unsympathetic people. My grandmother raised eight children. And if you were sick, you got a cup of tea that was a room temperature by the time it got to you and burnt toast with a pat of butter that hadn't been melted. And it was like, I hope you feel better. And we're like really empathetic people, but we just don't feel sorry for people. So I woke up in a hospital bed with a broken back at 15 years old. And my mom said, well, there are two options here. You can be a victim of this and you're going to make everybody around you miserable or you can be a survivor. I'm really grateful for that immediate let's go after this sentiment, but I didn't have a whole lot of time to grieve. And I really, as I've processed this over the last 30 years, I really think that that had something to do with my PTSD. No, no guilt or association to my mom. But I think about my own diagnosis experience. And I think about how this kind of obligation to go out like on day one and be like, my baby has Down syndrome and this is going to be beautiful. This is going to be this beautiful journey and this kind of immediate obligation that we feel as caregivers to immediately start our outreach and how detrimental that is to us as humans. And really, this is the introduction of your book. This is the foundation of it. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that kind of sentiment of, oh, that's what I tried to do. And that did not allow me this opportunity to go back and to grieve and to experience this change. Yeah, I think in particular in the Down syndrome community, there is this like very positive, sunshiny, rainbow filled thing that we're supposed to project our children as these angels type thing instead of living into their full humanity. And so I think that can force us to only feel like we can present the shiny parts of their diagnosis rather than share the harder parts that come with their diagnosis, which for us had to do a lot with medical stuff in the beginning. I don't think that's as widely talked about or now it's he's getting older and it's we're raising a disabled child in an inaccessible world. That takes a toll on a parent and it takes a toll on him, I'm sure, too, and probably will continue to do so when he is older. So I do think that a lot of parents probably listening to this have felt that pressure that they can't actually share their full range of experiences and emotions in association with raising their child with Down syndrome. I think that, you know, what your mom said to you after after having that experience, she was doing what she knew. That was how she was raised. And not all of what she said was bad. We we should oh, strive yeah. to be survivors. We should strive to to look forward to the future with hope. Absolutely. But I think that we miss a piece with this, what I call like overcoming culture. There is a church up the street from me that has a sign in their parking lot saying, you are an overcomer. And I know the sentiment is good there. 
But I just think it's missing something because another word to describe overcome is to suppress. And I think that's what society often wants us to do. We're supposed to suppress what is paining us and rush to that other side of pain wrapped in our same skin and our same outlook and our same selves and our same lives as quickly as possible. And we're told that's the mark of the strong. But what I argue is that the real strength comes when we decide to resist that temptation or excuse me, let me say insistence on overcoming and instead undergo it instead. And what I mean by undergoing, if you Google image the word undergoing, what you're going to find is someone about to undergo surgery. So that means admitting that you need help, seeking out help, and then digging into those deep, dark places that are paining you, fronting that pain, and then pursuing recovery after. That's what undergoing looks like. And I think that we so often miss this piece because we are in a Western culture. And if you're in church culture, a church culture as well, that is so often toxically positive. Toxically positive. It is literally. So what you just wrapped into your answer is my favorite sentence of the entire book or my favorite paragraph. You say, I believe your unexpected moment, your unexpected life holds the same potential for you, but only if you resist society's insistence on overcoming the unexpected and choose instead to undergo it. That undergoing process is something that you almost can't avoid if you will humble yourself to it. But man, there's so much vitality and wisdom and joy if you can just pause and undergo. I'm curious about this. I literally in my little margin, I wrote write about this because I think there's a, I think this is like the world's best writing prompt for people in the disability community. Have you found that undergoing means spiraling back to your pain and your insecurities and spiraling back to your diagnosis story and your birth story quite a bit? I do. I think that we have to move back before moving forward. So for me, this book is definitely not a how to undergo. It's what I learned through the process of undergoing. And let me just say, because it's on my mind, I don't know how anyone could have a child with a disability and not come out changed from that. If you have a child with a disability and your views are exactly the same, whether politically, spiritually, your worldview exactly the same, I don't know how that happens because once you are so connected to somebody who is on the very margins of society, I think that we should change with that. But we only get that opportunity to change if we do go backwards, like you mentioned. And so for me, what I had to do was... The doctor obviously believed that my son did not have a life worth living. And I realized that my grief was, yes, tied to what that doctor said, but also my value system was also pretty close to that doctor's because if I really dug deep, I realized that I was someone who had performed for my worth my entire life, that I thought my worth was attached to my resume. I thought a successful person was someone who was married, who got a job that needed a lot of money, and 
just did the things that we as a society deem as successful. And I thought success and worth were the same thing. And they're not the same thing. So yes, I had to go back to unpack what I, why I was so grieved. And I realized that my views were so skewed. And the reason that my grief was so heavy was because I thought that I had this child outside of the bounds of normalized success. If he couldn't achieve the success that I achieved, then how could he therefore live a worthy life? Yeah. And I think that is something probably all of us as parents of kids with disabilities have to really grapple with. Yeah. And I like how you founded that in values, right? Because I have this really weird, strong sense of self. Like in yoga, when you set an intention and they say, I want to like go through this beautiful guided meditation that might encourage you to be more calm or more open or blah, blah, blah. I literally always cycle back to, I want to be more me. Like I just really, I am about as self-determined as one person could possibly be, yet continuing to strive to improve on some of my God-given flaws and society-given flaws. So I had this really odd, I personally had this really odd acceptance it, it, it diagnosis, which for me was at birth. But of course, as you just articulated so well, we all have a coping time period and a real kind of like, I agree with you. I don't know how you couldn't have some epiphanies about human nature and your own experiences and that sort of thing. One of the things for me that has changed so much in my value system, again, going back to values, was judgment. I truly believe that judgment is really good. Man, I can make a decision really quick and it makes me a very good attorney. It makes me think quickly on my feet. I get more articulate when I have to make a decision in the moment. I chose a wedding dress in 15 minutes. I believe that judgment is important. I'm just moving home to my home office. There's my wedding dress over my left shoulder right there. The background from what I can see. You know what? The background will change, but I do kind of like having this guy over the shoulder. So it's like, it's a mess right now. The whole life thing is a mess. But judgment, like while my values included this super strong sense of yourself. So like, Jack, you go be whoever you are. And that is super great. That's just where my own values were my values around judgment and judging other people and other people's descents and other people's lifestyle choices has changed so much as a result of having Jack. And that's what I think is like the exploration that I would encourage for my audiences. You might be uncharacteristic like me and not have had such a strong grief process, but there are other things based on our own value sets that we can really explore because we're living this life of caregiving and we're opened up to a different marginalized community. And I just really think it's so beautiful. Thank you for that. Yeah. And I think no matter what your personality is, are you an Enneagram 8, by the way? I am an 8, yes. Yeah. Like all over me. (laughs) Yeah, I can tell. Uh, Yeah. Please tell my number two. I feel like anyone who reads this book and is familiar, I'm like, oh, they know I'm a three. Yeah. Um, I can't do other people's numbers anymore. I just remember I'm an eight. I did a like a 40 hour training on Enneagram years ago when I first started mediating. Yeah, I'm I, an eight. I have a one wing, by the way. I'm 
leadership. Okay. Interesting. But I do, I think no matter what your personality is or your life experiences that you bring to the table, I do think the unexpected, whatever it is, the unexpected with parenting a child with a disability too included in this, your empathy expands because there are things outside of your control. If you're used to being able to control your much of what happens into your world, and then you have this child who enters the world with, who is immediately discriminated against. My yeah. child was discriminated against before he was even born. That's going to your outlook and also, I think, just expand your empathy. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And it's, I loved this question. Your publicist sent me some sample questions and in kind of the theme of disability and awareness, I loved the question and it's on this topic of how do we find out about our own identities alongside our disabled children? And I think that kind of follows that same thing because we really get this beautiful opportunity to hone our own value set and our faith and our various interests. I just, the reason I was late again, sorry, is because I met with this couple that is interested in investing in businesses that offer housing opportunities for individuals with disabilities. And they said, we set out thinking that we really wanted to invest only in communities that were built specifically for people with disabilities. And long story short, when talking to a lot of people in this kind of development phase, we've realized that everybody's interests and values are different around housing for adults with disabilities. And that is probably very beautiful because all humans, wide array of need and ability and other things besides need and ability that are equally as important that might dictate the decision-making about independent living. And I'm like, yeah. You might have a child that is extremely capable, quote unquote, if you go through a checklist of independent living, but a parent that has had a, an experience that makes them very safety concerned, a parent that has had a terrible safety experience themselves. And so they're like, absolutely not. They're going to be in my basement forever. I'm going to drive them to and from work. And that's their interest and value. That's their interest set, right? Like they are very interested in safety and that's going to present higher than other things. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your own kind of, I don't want to call it identity crisis. Maybe it's like a transformation of your own identity as you went from that like performing perfectionism piece of it. Because I know for you, this involved an exploration of your faith as well. Yeah. So I would say for me, it was a lot of deconstruction in different areas of my life. So we already touched on the, I had to observe my obsession, I think, with being success and like extraordinary, like attention worthy, I think. So I had to deconstruct that myself and also my faith. Yeah. I had a weird faith upbringing. I had Catholic parents who were no longer Catholic and not very religious, but they sent me to this fundamentalist school. And I walked away from faith when I was 11 years old after this terrible church camp experience. And I came back to it when I met my husband. But that old faith that was really this view of a transactional God, you perform well, God rewards you. You do something bad, God punishes you. That started just popping through the surface 
once I got Anderson's diagnosis. And because I had this ableist view of disability and without knowing it at the time, I thought Down syndrome was a bad thing, right? And so I thought that I must have done something wrong to deserve this. And so that's where I started back when I was 27 years old is when we got this diagnosis. And it took, I don't know, you know, when Anderson was one, I felt very differently. And I was starting to see how disability was intrinsically tied to his identity. And learning that about him helped me to further learn about my own identity, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it makes us so self-deprecating, doesn't it? Like, I am unapologetically talkative because guess what? That's who I am. Yeah. And I think I have that confidence in large part because Jack is unapologetically wild. And so, like, I find myself and my neighbors sheds and closing their underwear drawers. And I'm like, this is where Jack is. So this is where I am. Like, and it's beautiful. It's weird to talk it out. Here's a question. Okay. So I love when you said, this is not a bad thing, but here's what I wonder. I wonder if, so I don't know, have you taken any implicit bias testing since you've been like really ingrained in the disability community? No, I have not. I'm interested though. I did. When we put at the Down Center Association of Greater Cincinnati, when I was on the board, maybe even president, I don't remember, but we were doing a strategic planning cycle. We do it every three years here in Cincinnati. And we were putting a DEI initiative in our strategic plan. And so we were all encouraged to do implicit bias testing. And we were encouraged to do two, one of which we were encouraged to do was disability and then just choose another one. And I came out pretty biased, like pretty ableist. And the way a test is really interesting. And it's one of the Ivy League schools that has a bunch of them online that you can do. Okay. Uh, but like one of the questions is, it shows a picture of a person that utilizes some device for mobility, whether it's, I don't remember if it was a wheelchair or a cane or something. And it's, do you associate pain with this question? And I'm sure I answered yes, because, you know, that that could have pain. It also looks at how long it takes you to answer yes or no, because it wants to know are you really thinking about it or something? But my bias in the disability community was pretty high. And here I am. I work professionally in the disability community and I really empathize with Jack's life experiences and whatnot. And I always, so like my implicit bias is at the front of my mind a lot because it really bothered me, frankly, that I still had this bias. I think about it a lot when I apologize for him. Apologize for Jack's pace, his speed, his behavior, almost like his presence a fair amount. And it came to me one time at Caroline when I waved to the person behind me, apologized to all the teachers, like frenetically got him and all of his papers and all of his spastic stuff around. Jack has ADHD too. We call him Jack. He's fast. Same. And I was like, why am I apologizing for him? This is him. This is his profile. It's beautiful. It's something that we embrace. Why am I apologizing? Other people need to appreciate this. Yeah. appreciate his freedom. And, but it made me think, and I used to play tennis a lot. And if I hit a winner, I would apologize to the other people on my team. Mm-hmm. So like we say disability isn't a bad thing. Like I, okay, I've come to that term, but I don't know. Do you have any, this is, yeah, this is I, a good talk. <laughs> I do think I know what you're saying. I would say that 
what helped me through this the most, and I would think that my implicit bias towards disability would have been extremely high before having Anderson. I did a partners in policy making course, which I'm sure some of your viewers are familiar with. And I became friends with a, I was about to say girl, she's not a girl, she's a woman named Gabrielle Fitchie. And she is a PhD and she has cerebral palsy and uses a wheelchair. And I was fortunate enough for her to be my roommate one of the weekends we were away. And I was able to pick her brain and she was gracious enough to let me do. And we've remained friends since. And I was able to ask her, what would you say to someone who looks at you and assumes you would want to be healed from this, not knowing the answer that I was going to get? And she said, that's like asking a Black person if they would want to change their skin color to white. This is who I am. And so as a parent, yes, do I still have moments where I want to apologize for Anderson and typically around his ADHD behaviors? Yes, I do. But I also intrinsically know now that he would not be who he is without Down syndrome. There is no Anderson without Down syndrome. And we shouldn't have to or feel like we have to apologize for his diversity because that's what disability is. It's a part of what I believe is God's intentional diversity. Is that a complex topic? Yes. Am I saying this with absolute certainty? No. But I do believe on the whole that that God created diversity and that disability is part of that. I agree entirely. And oddly enough, that is the page that I had opened in the book because I love it's I'm sure that like my thinking about this page that was open led me on my tangent about apologizing. But I love when you say it's page 139. When I first received Anderson's diagnosis, I was an eraser. Yeah, I was an eraser. He would be more alike than different. And you say the world would see that and I would see it too. Now, I believe my job is not to ignore his unique differences, but to get him to see that his disability is precisely what makes him. Yeah. The you, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's so beautiful. I have a funny story about that. We were, my mom and dad have a house in Key West and Key West is delightfully crunchy, self-determined. And so like Jack, he was riding in the back of my bike in a little like cart thing and he threw his shirt off. And this guy in Key West literally was driving by on his bike and he's, yeah, man, be free. And my husband stopped being behind us and gathering all the shrapnel that comes off the desk, off the bike, right? So two or three weeks later, we're home in Cincinnati and a senator who lived in our little suburb had passed away. And so ginormous funeral procession comes riding down the street. Well, honestly, like there was some family connection to this senator and I was feeling a little bit guilty for not having stopped at the visitation. And I knew that I was going to know many people that were driving past in this procession. I was going to have to stop with a wild toddler. He was probably, I don't know, five, four years old, still definitely in toddler phase developmentally. And so I was like quickly stuck down the corner and go get out of Dodge so I don't have to stop and put my hand over my heart while a U.S. senator is being laid to rest. Jack decided that very moment, that is the time to throw his shirt out of the bike trailer. 
So I just keep riding. Like, we'll abandon the shirt. <laughs> $10 for out of here. And don't you in my sweet little disgustingly sweet little town. The two days later, a laundered folded shirt arrived. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. I know, I was like, he belongs in Key West where people are like, be free, be free. (laughs) I love that. But I was like almost offended. What's interesting is, and this follows the theme of the book, I was almost offended by that folded shirt. Like, how dare you put your perfectionism on me? We were just going to abandon that shirt. Life moves on. Don't sweat the small stuff. It was a Cincinnati red shirt, and that was important. Don't sweat the small stuff. And then we get this laundered shirt. And somebody was very well-intentioned, but I felt the irony in it. I do. I see what you're saying, for sure. Yeah, super super hard, though. I think one of my biggest struggles with Anderson is accepting who he is and also pushing him to be the best version of his himself. And I think that all parents have that, but I think it's elevated when you have a kid with a disability who is outside, who acts outside of social norms, I guess you could say. And I don't know, I struggle with it too. So I'm saying that because I don't have all the answers and I want the listeners to know. This is not a self-righteous podcast. We are very, <laughs> we just chat. We're, see, we're free too. Okay. I, like, I can't tell you, I probably picked this, picked up the book. I probably read it in three chunks. First, I read the first hundred pages at our local coffee shop and I was crying and I had two people come check on me because oh. I was like inspired crying, but it's a disgustingly little town. So people were like, are you okay <laughs> with your kid? I'm like, yes, I'm inspired. And then I came home and told my babysitters because it was funny and embarrassing. And they, I started telling them about the book and they bought it in my kitchen on Amazon for their mom. So that was, yeah, that was fun. But every time I picked it up or looked at it on my bedside table, I was so curious about the imagery on the front. And then I got your questions and it says that it is imagining meeting Anderson in heaven. So I want to know about the cover. Okay. The cover is not the heaven piece, but I can answer both questions. Oh. Yeah. No, they, oh, they include it. it. Oh, yeah. yeah okay. but I can answer both. So the cover is beautiful. I'm very thankful for my cover designers at Bethany House. But basically, when we were living in New Mexico, there were these beautiful white sands behind our home, if you know, White Sands National Monument. And if you just look at the white sands on their own, it just looks like a beautiful sight. The sands have such a deep, long story to them. That area of New Mexico was covered by a Lake Otero and the lake dried up and it left behind white gypsum deposits. And then the forces of nature, the wind and so forth, further broke down these sands, polished them, and what's left behind is what we see today. And so that's part of the book. And then the book ends with us at another sand dune, which is, I think, Great Sand Dunes National Park in Colorado. Yes. And I, we took Anderson there and I just felt this like almost haunting feeling. I was like, this looks so familiar, not the sands, but like the scenery around it. And I just, I didn't really know where we were. And I realized we were like a half hour away from New Mexico. And I felt like this very like full circle moment 
where I thought my life was falling apart in New Mexico. And then six years later, I'm looking at this very similar imagery from New Mexico, basically, and almost longed for it because of what it gave me, which was a new life. And so the image that's on the cover is really what I would say call the product of death and resurrection. I believe that we have a God that promises resurrection. And I think that's not just about what happens to us at the end of this life, but what happens to us in and out over and over again in this one. And what I mean by that is when the unexpected hit, we may never get our old lives back. That lake that created those original white sands I was talking about, it's never coming back. But I believe that God makes made something new and beautiful out of it. That's what I believe that any of our unexpected opportunities or circumstances, they may not always be good. Obviously, I feel very differently about Down syndrome today, but other unexpected events that I have been through, I cannot classify as good, but I have seen how I believe God brings new life yeah. out of what seems dead. So that's the cover of the book. Oh, I see it now. I see the movement. I see the colors that you're describing. Yeah, I yeah. see that. And then the heaven piece, I can talk about if you want. Yeah, do it. Yeah, so what originally inspired me to write the book was I was in my own process of undergoing and I was thinking... Down syndrome is complex, right? Like I, I was starting to see how Anderson wouldn't be who he is without Down syndrome. And yet I don't believe God is a God that makes us suffer. And so how do I account for the open heart surgery and the other things that have come along with Down syndrome? And so I was wondering if Anderson would have Down syndrome in heaven. And I enrolled in seminary trying to find the answer uh -huh. <laughs> to this. And I believe that I did not find it in a book, I believe I found it in a theme park in San Antonio, Texas called Morgan's Wonderland. And I we went to this park and it's for it's a theme park that's made for all people of all abilities and disabilities. And we went to this puppet show and there was a mom feeding her child with a tube through a tube, I should say, and a child who had some sort of neurological disability and was making a lot of noises and waving his hands. And, and then there was my child with Down syndrome who was trying to join the puppet show. And I just felt there was no judgment whatsoever. It was just love. And I felt the hairs on my arms just stand at attention. And I really felt what I believe was the whisper of God just telling me that this is it. This is the answer you've been looking for, that... This is the kingdom of God right here. This is what it should look like. And this is what it will look like. Nobody has to change to enter. And so that, yeah, that that's how the book concludes. Yeah, it is like I had chills reading it because that is, that's it. That is absolutely it. So beautiful. That would be a great conclusion. But I always promise my listeners that I will give them something practical and I think that the concept of undergoing is certainly practical and something for my listeners to reflect upon. But I wondered if you could couple of more maybe tangible tips in talking about how your experience has 
helped you with outreach, which I think is what you are so good at. Any tips for folks that feel like, okay, I have had this kind of inward transformation and I am ready to have more outreach? So first of all, I just want to say that you do not have to monetize your internal transformation because obviously you and I have done that. Like with your business, your advocacy business, you've done that with me, with writing this book, I've done that. But that does, you do not have to, you can just take that pressure right off. That does not have to be a part of your plan. And you don't have to do it either. Yeah. You don't have to do it. No, you do not. Um, But I will say. Live your life. Yes, you can just live your life. But I think (laughs) if you really undergo the process of having a child with a disability and learning about your own biases and your empathy expands, I think no matter what, you become exceptionally equipped to help others who have suffered similarly to how you once suffer or maybe still suffer with your child's medical issues or whatever your experience is. You can become a really good friend. You will have people reach out to you for coffee who you don't even know because somebody knows you're going to help this person walk through that experience. So that is always available to you for really practical steps. If you're wanting to take that up a notch, if you're thinking, I know I have some purpose that should be coming from this and I don't know what direction to take because that's where I was. I was a journalist. And then I realized that TV news was just not going to be in my future anymore. It was just too grueling of a schedule. So I would say take a catalog of your gifts. What are your natural gifts? For me, obviously, communication was always a part of that. So I knew where my gifts naturally lie. So start taking a catalog of those. Then if you really don't know which direction to take, I would start saying yes to opportunities that come your way. And they can be in different categories of things. I said yes to sitting on a board of a national nonprofit, which is the Down Syndrome Diagnosis Network. And I did their communication for, I think, three years. I said yes to singing at church. Singing was such a part of my life growing up. So I I said yes to that. And I can't all recall. I said so many yeses trying to figure it out. I said yes to seminary. I said a lot of yeses. And eventually... Those yeses are, you're going to discover what you then have to say no to start narrowing down on that one thing that you, where you really should, that path should take you. So I I hope that helps, but yeah, take a count. That's it. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, I talk in like, I don't even know, tornadoes and you TV journalist people are so articulate. You make me so jealous. Like here I am with a podcast and I cannot say things that beautifully. But yes, that was very, very Thank nice. Thank you for that. Very nice. I think people can do something with that. So yes, I, and that also describes the journey that I had. I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here, but I know I'm a leader and mm-hmm. I know I'm uniquely positioned to understand the laws. And I know I'm a really good negotiator that'll make me a good advocate so let's just see what happens and I did the same thing sure I'll be on that board sure I'll come to that meeting sure I want to learn about this like I don't know if I care about housing I don't know if I care about whatever but sure I'll come and then you're right the real secret comes when you are able to start saying no and to really hone in on on what you want to do so beautiful oh my gosh thank you so much for joining me thank you so much for having me I had a lot of fun talking 
to a fellow mom and somebody who has obviously done the work of this internal transformation staff and is is putting it to good use and advocacy is a big piece of my heart. And so I appreciate what you do. Oh, thank you. The work continues, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. 